Would you join me in the word of prayer for a moment as we turn our eyes to the word of God? Our Father, we come to you now so very thankful that you have given us a revelation. You have given us your word. You have given us your mind so that we might know who we are and what you require of us. And most importantly, that we might know your son. I pray that our time in your word this morning, Lord, would be honoring to you, would give you glory, would give glory to our Savior, would be used of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts to make us more like our dear Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. So turn to Matthew 6, just in some of your Bibles, perhaps even on the same page as our scripture reading. We have a very short passage today as we're working our way through the disciples' prayer. While you're finding Matthew 6, let me tell you the story of a man worth admiring. His friends just called him Ag. And Ag was a, a righteous and a wise man who loved the Lord. His theology was outstanding. He had a high view of God as the creator of all things. He had a high view of the Son of God as worth pursuing and knowing that if you know God, you must know His Son. He had a high view of the Word of God. And in fact, he was known to those around him to often proclaim the truth that every single word that God has spoken is true. That was Ag's passion. He believed God to be his protector And he lived a worthy life of total trust and faith and dependence on the Lord. And in fact, his rich prayer life included regular prayers for the Lord to guard him from ever being self-sufficient, to guard him from ever being independent, but rather to keep Ag in a place where he must be solely dependent on God. And, And Ag's prayer life was astounding. He specifically Ask God to limit any blessings in his life that would lead to arrogance or pride or dullness of spirit. He would ask the Lord regularly, don't give me anything that will make me arrogant, that will make me self-sufficient, that will make me independent. We should all aspire to be like old Ag. And that's the topic I'd like to address this morning in our continuing series on how to pray in power This morning, I'd like to talk to you about the power of dependence, the power of dependence. And Jesus continues the disciples' prayer, the model or outline for our prayer lives. And we're in Matthew 6, verse 11. Probably most of you know this by heart. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This is not about stuff. It's not about things, not about food. This is about the heart. This is about a heart of dependence, of reliability on God as it relates to God's provision and God providing what you need to stay alive in this world. And that's really a representation of trusting Him for everything else. Now, I know that the idea of trusting the Lord, of being dependent on the Lord, I think it can feel a little bit abstract. So I want to start off this morning with a definition of dependence on God, and then the rest of our time will be actions associated with that dependence. So let me give you a good definition for dependence, and I'll repeat it a couple of times. Genuine dependence upon the Lord. Genuine dependence upon the Lord occurs in the heart. Genuine dependence upon the Lord occurs in the heart 
When your confidence in God overcomes anxiety about the future. Let me repeat that. Genuine dependence upon the Lord occurs in the heart when your confidence in God overcomes anxiety about the future. That's dependence. Your confidence in God overcomes any anxiety you may have about the future. Now, I want to avoid an exegetical trap. I want to avoid a a preaching trap, and that is trying to tell you how to conjure up some emotion of dependence, that I feel dependent upon the Lord, that I feel like I'm, I'm really relying on Him. I'd like to use Jesus' model prayer here as a springboard to talk to you about how to act on your dependence, how to do things, practically speaking, that work out dependence. And, and it's worked out primarily in prayer, but then we'll expand beyond that. Now, I want to give you four or five ways to act on your dependence. The first way is request the Lord's supply. Request the Lord's supply. And that's really the heart of this particular admonition. Jesus instructs the faithful to ask the Lord to give them bread. Now, is he saying, you know, actually bread? No, it's a figure of speech where the part represents the whole. So when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he means food. He means whatever you need for each day. And And I think it's important to remember, to keep in mind that in Jesus' day, for most people, food was something that had to be worked out on a daily basis. They didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have freezers. There was a very large contingent in the economy of of the ancient Near East in Jesus' day that was primarily day laborers. That it was not uncommon for you to go to work in order to provide the meal that your family would have that evening and perhaps part of the next day. And so we understand that. Bread means food. It means basic provision. Now, a little more complex is the idea of our daily bread. Daily is a Greek word that appears only here and in the the, uh, parallel prayer in Luke 11.3. And it has a lot of different potential meanings. It could be anything necessary for existence. It could mean for the present day. It could mean for the coming day. And a lot of theologians have spilled a lot of ink over what daily means. I'm going to save you the time and just give you some safe ground we can land on. We can safely land on the ground that this is speaking of what's needed for a day. And when you pray this in the morning, daily means today. When you pray it in the evening, it means tomorrow. I think we're on safe ground to say that. Now, part of the reason that there's actually a, a controversy here is that some see a contradiction or some sort of tension between this verse and Jesus' teaching at the very end of Matthew 6. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. That somehow there's a tension between those two, that you can't pray for your daily bread and not be worried about today or tomorrow. Well, praying for daily bread, it's not an expression of anxiety. It's the cure for anxiety. It's the cure One commentator made a very poetic observation. He said, anxiety wrings its hands. Faith folds its hands. He goes on to say that anxiety paces the floor back and forth. But faith kneels on the floor. So these two work very well. The only way you can not worry about tomorrow is to pray, give us this day our daily bread. The two go together beautifully. 
And so at the center of acting in a way that demonstrates dependence is simply to request the Lord's supply. And you may say, that, that sounds like a third grade level message here. Oh, but this is loaded. Because requesting the Lord's supply, His command to pray, give us this day our daily bread, is actually laden with spiritual warnings. It's laden with some spiritual caution. And I want to give you four spiritual warnings. Warning number one. There is no exception to this command. There's no exception to this command. Jesus wasn't speaking only to the category of people who struggle to make ends meet. Those who truly earn their food for the day each day. There's no little asterisk. There's no footnote at the bottom of this page in your Bible that says, Jesus commanded us to pray for your daily bread, unless, of course, you're already abundantly supplied. There's no asterisk. There's no footnote. The amount of wealth you actually possess has no bearing on whether or not you were to pray, give us this day our daily bread. You know, the Lord can take away everything you have in a day. Whatever you have at this very moment is only because God allows you to continue to have it. It can all be gone tomorrow. Just ask Job. Job lost everything in the span of a day. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. He lost his will to live. All in a day. Warning number one, there is no exception to this command. Warning number two, praying for long-term security is the opposite of dependence. Praying for long-term security is the opposite of dependence. There's an ancient Jewish work called the 18 Benedictions or the Shemona Ezra. And it includes a prayer for food, but it's, it's an interesting prayer Because it doesn't ask for this day's bread, it asks for this year's bread. It says, bless for us, O Lord our God, this year and all kinds of its yield for our good and shower down in winter, dew and rain for a blessing upon the face of the earth. Fulfill us of thy bounty and bless us our year that it would be as the good years. Blessed be thou, O Lord, who blessest the years. Now, for an agricultural society, it's obviously understandable to pray for a good season that's reasonable but jesus would almost certainly have been familiar with this ancient prayer and he raises the standard he doesn't just say once a year pray for a good year he raises the standard to keep the faithful from looking at the size of their flocks from looking at a lush field right before a harvest and having any sense of dependence or peace from visible wealth He intends for his followers to be kept close and dependent, always asking their father to provide for that day. Here's a third warning. Warning number three. Stewardship and dependence are not the same thing. Stewardship and dependence are not the same thing. Now, certainly the Bible teaches on stewardship, on diligence, shrewdness, hard work, Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 6, gives the lesson of the ant, the hard worker, which prepares her provisions and works to gather a harvest. Proverbs 27, 3 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. Principles of stewardship abound in Scripture. But the same book of Proverbs also teaches in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not lean upon your understanding. It's a word that means don't get comfortable on what you know. Don't get comfortable with the size of your bank account. Don't get comfortable with your ability to make money. Don't get comfortable with anything except the Lord. Don't rest on it. Don't depend. Don't be comfortable on anything other than God. I've been pastoring for a while now, and I've noticed that the true abiding dependence and trust in the Lord that a Christian has and the size of his personal wealth, these are not correlated. They don't go together. Some of the most peaceful people I've ever known have no choice but to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And some of the most fretting, anxious people I've ever known are those who could live on what they have for 10 years or for a lifetime. And they still fret and they're anxious. Stewardship is an external act of wisdom. Dependence is an internal state of the heart. They go together, but they are not the same. Both ought to exist together, but never mix the two up. And here's a fourth warning, and I've, I've saved the, the most dire one for last. The accumulation of wealth should warn you of spiritual danger. The accumulation of wealth should warn you of spiritual danger. We thank the Lord for great provision. We thank the Lord for giving us more than we need. I I doubt very seriously that any of you here are genuinely worried about what you're going to have for lunch. It's prudent to be cautious and it's prudent to be very wary spiritually though. If you have more than enough, could I say this? Look to your soul and be careful. There are all kinds of spiritual dangers correlated with the accumulation of wealth. You know, I've seen men and women in the church become so obsessed with building wealth, so obsessed with building their own little personal empire or making the next big deal that they eventually become essentially useless to the kingdom. I've, I've heard many, many times, well, I'll be able to serve in the church as soon as my business gets up and running. You know what? It never happens. Because it's then as soon as I open the second branch or as soon as I get this, as soon as I do this, and there's never a time where it's enough. You can only build one kingdom. You can build God's or you can build yours. Those are the only two choices. Or as Jesus puts it a few verses down in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Prosperity is a warning to beware of spiritual decline, of a dulled faith and a dulled dependence upon the Lord. If if the last time you can remember genuinely begging God for help, for something, for provision, it was 25 or 30 years ago, be wary, be warned. Moses gave this warning. He taught the second generation of Israelites a song. It was a teaching song. It was a warning song in Deuteronomy 32. And the, the song begins calling the singer to ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. Now, the rock in Scripture is often a metaphor for strength and for the weightiness of God. But it was also in the very recent past that God provided water for Israel from what? From a rock. God as provider. But Moses issues a prophetic warning later in the song, a warning for Israel to remember, and he uses a poetic name, a nickname for Israel, Jeshurun, And he says in Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 15, this is the song he's teaching them. 
But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, thick, and sleek. And he abandoned God who made him and treated the rock of his salvation with wicked foolishness. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who brought you forth. When Moses teaches this song, the Israelites had not crossed the Jordan River into the promised land. They had not conquered the wicked peoples whom God had assigned them to judge. They had not fought the battles which would be necessary. They had not settled into the farms and the ranches and the villages and the cities. Right now at this moment, encamped on the plains of Moab across the Jordan River from Canaan, they were totally dependent on God. But Moses warns, when you become fat and thick and sleek, meaning when you've settled and your vineyards are producing and your farms are giving tremendous crops and your herds are growing exponentially, he says prophetically, he abandoned God. Because in the eyes of the spiritually dull, there's nothing left to ask for. One theologian commented on this tendency when God's people have an abundance of provisions, they tend to lose their sense of dependence on Him and to stray from Him. So what's the cure? What's the remedy remedy to these spiritual dangers? Well, it's how you act on your dependence on the Lord. The first one, request the Lord's supply. The second way to act on your dependence is repeat the Lord's mercies. Repeat the Lord's mercies. Part of the reason for God insisting on this dependence upon Him and Him alone, it puts you in the position to give God glory by repeating the truth about Him back to Himself. When King David was advanced in years, he's he's very close to death. He wrote a psalm which teaches and instructs in the ways of following God. It's It's very much a teaching psalm, and that's Psalm 37. And in Psalm 37, he reflects on the faithfulness of God to provide. Psalm 37, 25, he says, I was young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. And in the very next verse, he says that God lends generously. Now, what's the obvious implication? The implication is that God owns everything, but he's generous in how he lends it to you. By the way, to to lend generously, it's a phrase that means to show you favoritism. That God lends to you like you're his favorite. I suppose every sibling, when you're growing up, you want to imagine that you're your parents' favorite. And your parents say, well, we don't have any favorites. And you're sort of suspicious of whether that's actually true or not. But you like to imagine that you're the favorite. This says you can trust God because he's going to treat you as if you are his favorite. He lends generously. And you repeat this to him. This is what David did. He repeated, I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. We have a truth that was taught by the Lord Jesus himself just a few minutes after he taught, give us this day our daily bread. It's a a truth that's precious to us. It's based on the Lord's mercies. It's one of the greatest comforts I think ever written in scripture. And it's found in beginning of verse 25. For this, I, this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus knows that we live in a sinful and a cursed world. He knows that we live in a world where surviving is, is difficult. This is a, an amazing comfort because it, pra- it pairs so beautifully, so nicely with the little prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Because you, O oh God, are the one who reminds me through your son that God will feed me, God will clothe me, I'll have everything I need. And I think it's such a shame when we rob ourselves of peace, when we believe we can worry our way to provision and supply. You remember how God first provided food for Israel long before they had their own farms, long before they had their own ranches, their own vineyards. When the Israelites had escaped Egypt by God's hand and miraculously walked through the Red Sea, they began to grumble. Why? Because they feared running out of food in the wilderness. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 4, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my law. Now it will be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, this is an exercise in trusting in the Lord. And in fact, God commanded in verse 19, that they were to eat their fill and not have leftovers. They were not to save any for the next day, to eat it all. But our sinful hearts want to trust in ourselves. Chapter 16, verse 20 says, but they did not listen to Moses and some left part of it until morning. You remember what happened? It bred worms. It became foul. Because God said, no leftovers, eat it all. You must not have one crumb left. You must trust that tomorrow when you wake up, the manna will be on the ground again. God refused to let them have a manna savings plan. It wasn't going to happen. He wanted them to learn that he would provide and they must trust him. And this was to provide the pattern of repeating the Lord's mercies, of remembering The spiritual leaders of the returned exiles in Israel prayed during the national day of confession of sin. A thousand years later, Nehemiah 9 verse 20, they prayed this, you gave your good spirit to give them insight. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. Asaph, the psalmist, wrote in Psalm 78, he rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them grain from heaven. 
Jesus himself reminded the Jews in John 6, 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And listen, God provided manna every day for 40 years, every single day. And remember, this includes every day of grumbling, every day of disobedience, every day of discipline. And yet the manna fell every day. Joshua 5 verse 12 tells us when the manna stopped, when they crossed the river and they were in Canaan and able to eat from what the land grew. So here's my question for you. When will the manna, the provision of God, stop for you? It'll stop for you when you don't need it anymore. When you cross the river, as it were, of going home to the Lord, then the manna stops. How do you act upon your dependence on the Lord Request the Lord's supply. Repeat the Lord's mercies to him. And third way to act. Review the Lord's faithfulness. Review the Lord's faithfulness. Moses taught the second generation of Israel the spiritual reason for the manna. What was the reason? Deuteronomy 8.16 In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Israel had 40 years of God's faithfulness to look back on, to build their faith, to build their trust in the Lord. It was meant to strengthen them spiritually. They're about to face enemies in Canaan. And manna for four decades told them that God has been faithful 365 days a year for 40 years. We will have victory. God's promises will be fulfilled. He's never failed us one time. You review the Lord's faithfulness. Psalm 77, Asaph is expressing his distress. He's, he's crying out with a troubled heart and he's writing about a time when it seemed that God in his discipline had just felt emotionally like God had forgotten Israel. He even asks, will the Lord reject evermore? And will he not be favorable again? But Asaph cured his own despair How? He reviewed the Lord's faithfulness. And he he goes back in his mind's eye all the way to the Red Sea. And he writes this. Psalm 77, 11. I shall remember the deeds of Yah. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Oh God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows went here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, but your footprints were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Can you, I know you know the story of the Red Sea, but can you put yourself in the place of Israel to take that first step forward when over there there's a wall of water and over there there's a wall of water and there's a couple of miles in front of you that you're going to walk? Or, put it this way, give us this day our daily bread. That's the level of dependence that God is calling us to. 
And it's so sad to worry your way through life about God's help and God's provision and reach the end of your life and only then see that God has been with you all the way home. He's provided all the way. I can prove to you that God has been faithful to provide for you. I can prove it. You want to know how? You're here. You're here. If you struggle with worry and anxiety over the Lord's provision, then first of all, you ought to keep a prayer journal and and go back in the history of your life and remember all the ways that God has been faithful to you. Don't forget one. What sweet times to remember. What sweet moving memories you have of God's marvelous care you'll recall. And so you review the Lord's faithfulness. There's a fourth way to act on your dependence on the Lord. Return the Lord's provisions. Return the Lord's provisions. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 9, Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will burst with new wine. Paul commands in 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 7, Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Oh, the lies the world has told you about giving to the Lord. Let me give you six of them. Lie number one, your stuff belongs to you. Your stuff belongs to you. What's the truth? Your stuff does not belong to you. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is Yahweh's. Well, that's pretty much everything, right? As well as, as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Oh, not only does your stuff not belong to you, you don't even belong to you. You don't belong to you. Lie number two, giving is about money. Giving is about money. It's not. No, giving is about loyalty of the heart. God does not need your money. Jesus said, I will build my church as long as the members of Grace Bible Church give enough. No, he just said, I will build my church. God doesn't need your money. You need to demonstrate where your loyalties lie. Jesus knew the idolatrous heart of the rich young ruler, the one who claimed to be a law keeper, but Jesus knew the one big idol of his heart, and it was his stuff. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to give it all away. You've got to get rid of that idol. The man wouldn't, and he walked away unsaved. Listen, if you know that you're miserly and tight-fisted in your giving, then you're the one who needs to give more because it's a demonstration of loyalty and trust in the Lord. Or if I could put it this way, if giving is the last item on your budget list, and if you make it down to that, then you'll think about it. That's not loyalty. Lie number three, you have a choice. You have a choice. Oh, how often 2 Corinthians 9, 7 is mistaken for a choice. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is not only give if you can be cheerful about it. This is give and you need to be cheerful about it. You see the difference? And yes, there's amounts in there that you're, you're praying about, but it's a command to check your heart. And whatever you do give, don't give it grudgingly. The only reason we give things grudgingly is because we think they belong to us. Here's a fourth lie. Your kingdom is first. 
Your kingdom is first. Fourteen times in the law of God in the Pentateuch, God commands that giving be the first fruits. That God gets what is due to him first. That's a demonstration that his kingdom is first and your own household is second. What did we read a moment ago? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. There's lie number five. Giving and faith are not related. Giving and faith are not related. If, if you're praying, give us this day our daily bread, yet you're fearful or stingy or less generous than you could be, then your prayer is a contradiction to your own heart. Giving is an act of faith. It's important if you have little because God helps you and blesses you as you demonstrate faith. That's promised in 2 Corinthians 9. And it's important if you have a lot because it reminds you that your hope is in the Lord. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, here's the reason, or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here's one more lie. Giving and worship are not related. Giving and worship are not related. That's a lie. Giving is worship. This is why we continue to have a time of giving. I know we have a way to give electronically and some of you do that and we're thankful for that. But we're gathered to worship. You must have an opportunity to express that love for the Lord tangibly. Giving is, in both Testaments, defined as an act of worship. In the Old Testament, you couldn't worship God without giving. You couldn't do it. And the Lord made provision. Look, if you're poor, you can go catch a bird and I'll take that, but you will give me something. Because worship costs. For us, it costs Jesus Christ his life and it costs us, as Proverbs says, to buy truth. It is unthinkable to worship God without giving. Return the Lord's provisions. How do you act upon your dependence on the Lord? The first four, I think, are obvious. The last one will surprise you. Request the Lord's supply. Repeat the Lord's mercies. Review the Lord's faithfulness. Return the Lord's provisions. This one might surprise you. The fifth way to act upon your dependence. Reveal the Lord's kingdom. Reveal the Lord's kingdom. Now, I want to build a case here for you that you ought to let your trust in the Lord, your complete peace about His provision, be a pointer and the revealer, and listen carefully, an evidence that Jesus Christ is coming to rule this earth. There he is again, putting something about the millennium in the sermon. Remember, this prayer is set into the larger context of the Gospel of Matthew, which emphasizes what? The Gospel being the doorway to the kingdom of Christ coming to this earth. And in this model prayer, what have we just prayed? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've already seen that we're to look to the future in prayer. And now it seems like there's a shift to the present. Give us this day our daily bread. But there's a relationship. We're to show our trust in the Lord now, listen carefully, as if it is the coming kingdom. One scholar rightly suggests this prayer. Give us today the eschatological bread that is already ours in the future. 
Now, what do I mean by this? Not one of you here has ever had this thought. You've never emailed me or texted me and said, Pastor, I I need to talk to you about this thought that's just plaguing me. None of you have ever been in in a mentoring session and said, I have this thought that's just plaguing me that, boy, when I get to heaven and when I come to earth in my resurrected body and when Jesus is reigning over the whole world from Jerusalem, I sure hope I'll have enough to eat. Oh, I hope I'll be able to pay my bills. I, I just, I don't even know what job I can have. I'm not qualified to do anything in heaven. I don't know. That doesn't ever occur to you. Why? Because you rightly assume everything will be fine. This prayer, give us this day our daily bread, right after having prayed your kingdom come, it's a way of anticipating the ease of trusting the Lord in the future. Not one of you here have a problem trusting that God will provide for everything you need in heaven and in the coming kingdom. Now, here's a theological conundrum. Some of you might say, but I won't have any needs in the coming kingdom. That's a heavy-duty theological discussion, but let me ask you this. What would ever lead us to believe that God simply puts us on autopilot such that he is no longer the one providing everything we need? Let me ask you a question. When Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, that all the creation is literally held together by him, when Colossians 1.17 says, in him all things hold together, does that stop in the age to come? In other words, do we stop being wholly dependent on God for our very existence? I think we'd be very hard-pressed to prove that we suddenly become independent of our need for God to sustain us. My Bible says Jesus is eternal. My Bible says that Jesus holds all things together. Therefore, Jesus holds all things together eternally, including my very existence. There's never an autopilot. If, not to scare anybody, if you truly believe that there is a point where you are removed from being dependent on God, Uh, That makes you a Mormon. And I hate to tell you that, but that's what that is. Because you have become a God. We're not gods. We're dependent on God. A little technical note, too, if you want to put a last nail in that argument. We will eat in the coming kingdom, just so you know. Jesus ate in his glorified body. In the millennium, the, the coming incredible fruitfulness of the earth is described as producing food. This is emphasized multiple places in the Old Testament. Amos 9, Joel 3, Jeremiah 31, many others. Revelation 22 pictures the saints eating the fruit of the tree of life. The point is, is that when you apply the eschatological, the end times nature of the whole of the gospel of Matthew, what we've already seen, give us this day our daily bread, becomes much more than just provide for me now. It becomes provide for me now exactly the way and with the level of faith and contentment and joy and total peace that I'll have in the coming kingdom. Not one of you will ever wonder whether God will provide for you when you're on this earth during the millennium. So what's the lesson? When you think about your future in the intermediate heaven as it is now, your future in the coming reign of Christ on earth, we have no trouble trusting that the Lord will perfectly provide for us. Jesus says, have that trust now. Have it now. Don't be the one that's five minutes from your own death and your last thought is, well, I guess I made it. 
have that thought now. Now, there's something I need to take a little time on. I have to be abundantly clear about this. This delightful prayer, which places us in the position of total dependence on God, this is not a prayer for everyone. Give us this day our daily bread is not a prayer for everyone. It is a prayer only for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. It is not a prayer for the lost. Yes, God graciously gives the provision of sunshine and food to the world as an act of general grace. But give us this day our daily bread is not a prayer for those outside of faith in Christ. They can't rightly pray this. They can't rightly expect this from God. And remember, we just prayed, your kingdom come. But the lost is still concerned with his own kingdom. He's not concerned with the kingdom of Christ. He's concerned with his own kingdom. You recall that Jesus reminded the Jews of the manna of their forefathers being received in the wilderness. Well, he had a bigger purpose for reminding them of this. Because the manna was merely to point them to a greater truth. John 6, 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I'll bet you can fill this in, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. You see, to the one who has never placed his faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and entrance into the kingdom, your daily bread is the least of your concerns. That's the least of your concerns. Before you can ask for daily bread, you must worship the bread of life. Because right now, anything you have as an unbeliever is only a temporary mercy of God. And I would remind you of what Job said concerning his own life, the very same thing that the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.6, that we've brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it either. But Paul goes on to say, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Why? Because in Christ's coming kingdom, we're heirs of the glorious riches of God. Well, you remember old Ag? Ag was a righteous and a wise man who loved the Lord. He had a high view of God as the creator of all things. He had a high view of the Son of God as worth pursuing and knowing that if you know God, you must know His Son. He had a high view of the Word of God and he was known to those around him to often proclaim that every single word that God speaks is true and trustworthy. He believed God to be his protector and he lived a life of total trust and faith and dependence on the Lord. And his rich prayer life included regular prayers for the Lord to guard him, to guard him from ever becoming self-sufficient or independent, but to keep old ag in a place where he must depend on God. His prayer life was astounding. He regularly, specifically asked God to limit any blessings in his life that would lead to arrogance and dullness of spirit and dependence on God. Ag's full name was Agur, son of Jacob. And he's credited with a small portion of the book of Proverbs compiled and primarily written by Solomon. 
Some scholars think this is a nickname for Solomon himself, but Agur's prayer isn't consistent with Solomon. Certainly not a prayer to be limited in any blessing which would lead to arrogance or pride. Listen to this extended version of Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread by Agur, son of Jacob. The words of Agur, the son of Jacob, two things I asked of you. Do not withhold from me before I die. Keep worthlessness and every false word far from me. In other words, give me integrity and listen to this prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is God? Or lest I be impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. Agur's prayer in Proverbs chapter 30 is give me enough to sustain me. Don't give me so much that I'm tempted to forget you, God, and don't give me so little that I'm tempted to steal to get more. Agur desired to live a life of dependence, and that dependence ought to shape and characterize your prayer life, not just for provision for daily bread, but for everything. So you pray, give us this day our daily bread, and you be like Agur to say, give me enough, but not so much I become arrogant, and not so little that I become tempted. What a great prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Our Father, we trust you. We love you and thank you. In just a matter of a few words, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us an entire ethic for depending on you. An entire system of being on our knees, dependent on our God who gives us manna each day. I pray for those here, Lord, first, who are trusting in their own righteousness, who perhaps have a lot and have believed that because they have a lot, that must be a sign of God's blessing on them when in fact they don't know Christ. And the only reason they have much is because of your general grace and kindness to the world at at large. I pray that you would bring them into the kingdom this day to realize that every penny that they have is only because of your kindness. I pray for those among us, Lord, that perhaps have been tempted toward spiritual dullness. They have not been forced to their knees in some years to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I pray that they would be reminded that there is no exception to that, that we all are to pray, give us this day. And I pray for those, Lord, struggling with worry and anxiety. Oh, how much peace we miss when we worry our way through every day. Lord, I pray that even this night, they would be able to, as the psalmist says in Psalm 4, lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make us to dwell in safety. Might we give you glory? Might we point the way to a future kingdom because our friends and family and neighbors see us living in a way that is peaceful, filled with contentment, filled with laughter and joy because we know that every morning when we wake up, the manna will be on the ground. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.